Hey everybody and welcome to GVB Mind Warrior Mindcast. This is part of my remastermind series. I want to take everyone through piece by piece the journey of my life and where it started and where it has ended up so far and the, the, the high points and the low points along the way because they're both important because the high points teach you something and the low points teach you even more. And it's how you come back from those low points and how you come through the adversities and what you pick up on the way that make you the person you end up becoming. And if those hits don't shape you in a positive manner, then they can be detrimental to the outcome of where your life takes you. All right, so sit back and enjoy this. We're going to get into part one of when I was a child. And some of the things that I went through as, as far as it wasn't what people see now, and it was a vastly different life. And I had to make some drastic changes as my time went on in order to make things better for myself. Otherwise, I don't know where life would have taken me. And it was, I suppose, a challenge on the way trying to work out how to navigate these pieces. And then when I got to the point of deciding that I needed to make some serious changes and then how I implemented those and this, the desire that set in and then the amb ambition that set in and then the obsession that set in. And I've become very obsessive with what I do because I feel that obsession is the only way to take you there. And that's why it's, I find it very hard to multi-strand. A lot of people talk about being good at this and good at that and good at this at the same time. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I think you can become pretty average and good average, but I don't think you become the best. And I think if you really want to take yourself to another level and push the boundaries beyond where you ever thought you could get, you have to focus in on one thing and become not only the subject matter expert, because there's great deals of armchair experts out there, you have to become the person who actually can put into practice a practical application. Like in martial arts, we have the bunkai, which is taking the pieces of the kata, which is the patterns, and transitioning that into how it applies in combat and making it work so it actually has a functionality. And too many people are great on the sidelines with the great theories and all the rest of the information, but when it comes to putting it into practice, they're too scared to take that first step. So it's a very big thing for me to take the first step before I get all the skill sets because I find that when you're put under pressure, you're forced to make those choices and decisions and you're forced to learn at a faster rate. And that's, I suppose, what I've always done. And I'd call it naivety and stupidity being my greatest two assets. I think it's because, you know, I, I like to be a little bit naive and a little bit stupid because too many people overthink. And by overthinking, what they in fact do is they, they find all the reasons they can't do it and the reasons they can't make it. And before they start, they've already talked themselves out of it. And so I like to be a little bit more naive and just start. And as I'm moving along and going along the way, I start finding the solutions, I start finding the answers through the mistakes. And so the mistakes aren't a bad thing because they keep pushing you forward. They're, they're a step downwards, but they're a step downwards in a positive direction. So it's like walking along a pathway and you hit those undulations. Well, a mistake is taking a downward step and from that comes a positive step. And I think if we sort of put that in our mindset and make it more about that process. We won't worry so much about making mistakes because they're always forward movements. They just aren't always in, a, in an up and down direction. You know, it could be down, it could be up, but it's not always in, in, a, in a linear path. It's sometimes it undulates up and down and we have to be ready for that and we have to accept that because that's how we learn and that's the, the way our bodies and minds work. So when I was a kid, I mean, my life was very different to what they see. Now, I was born with severely dry skin, some of the worst eczema I think you've ever seen. And my, my feet and my hands were split and bleed completely through the heels, through the middle of the foot, the ball of the foot. My fingers were split in every joint and bleed incessantly all through the wintertime and all through the summertime. 
I had massive dry patches on my skin. I'm talking, when I say massive, I'm talking about four or five inch patches of dry skin all over my arms and legs. And it made it pretty horrendous because it, not only was it really itchy, it was really painful. And as a young kid, we lived near the beach and my parents used to take me down to the beach all the time. And they didn't understand why I hated the water so much because it was it was like having salt rubbed into a fresh wound in the old pirate days. And that's how it felt every time I went near the water. The reason they took me there is because they thought the salt water would be good for the skin. But it was, in fact, the reverse was happening to me and the pain that was setting in was making me really, really upset and very uh, unhappy with my life. So as life continued, I, I got bullied and picked on quite a bit. I was the youngest kid in my street by five years and that made me the target for every kid out there who wanted to have a, a bit of a thump at me. And it made me really timid and made me really sort of introverted. I didn't speak that much to a lot of these kids because I knew what they were after. And I got pushed around so much to the point that I actually took another route home in the afternoons as I started going to school. There was a, a road above my parents' street called Northcliffe Avenue. And at the end of the street, hence the name, Northcliffe, there was a cliff, uh, probably about a six or seven metre drop, and down onto rocks. And about two and a half metres out, I suppose, from the edge of that cliff was a tree, a gum tree. And so I made a commitment that that's how I was going to go home. So I threw my bag down there one day. So I had to go down there and get it. And I ran and I leapt and I wrapped my arms and legs around this tree and I slowly slid my way to the bottom. Now, I didn't think it through because I was wearing shorts and a short sleeve shirt at that time. And the splinters from that tree were horrendous. And so it took me the rest of the night to get them out. But that became the way I went home for the rest of the term and then the rest of the year because it avoided the confrontation. And this sort of stuff went on for years and years and years. And it started reflecting my behavior at school because I couldn't actually fit in. And then when the kids started bullying me and picking on me about the way my skin looked, I didn't know how to lash out because I didn't know how to fight. And it became a, a real problem. So I thought, well, how do I become popular amongst the kids? Because I didn't know. I didn't know how to make that happen. So I thought, well, what if? What if, what if I become funny? What if I become the prankster and the jokester? And so that's the path I took. I became this kid that was always pulling pranks on the teacher. You know, when I found out that silicon spray was invented and I took some of that to school and I sprayed it on the chalkboard in the classroom and it meant the teacher couldn't write. You know, I'd put toothpicks in the door lock to lock her out of the room. I'd, I'd, pick, I'd pick locks in the, in the room and shut other cupboards and lock them up and I just became this constant problem to the point that my parents were called up to the school pretty much every second or third day. My father made a joke about it, actually calling it the bi-weekly meeting. And every time he'd walk in, he'd say, so is Greg going to be put up for school captain? And they'd say, I don't think so, Mr. Van Borsum, come and take a seat. The, the result of all this stuff got so bad that, <laughs> that I was sent to sit outside this principal's office every day. And what happened, I became very close friends with a lady called Pam White. Now, Pam was the office secretary, and she'd heard all the rumors about me, all the stories about me. And she decided in her head that rather than judge me and prejudge me, she would actually take the time to get to know me. And it was funny because she welcomed me in, she sat me down, she started talking to me. And I think she worked out pretty quickly that if I was spoken to with a little bit of niceness, then I wasn't such a bad kid after all. And and she started to realize that I also was pretty witty and was a bit of fun to have around. So she quite enjoyed having the company. And I enjoyed being there because she wasn't berating me. She wasn't telling me how bad I was. And she wasn't constantly telling me I was going to be the reason she quit the job. So, So it became the place I wanted to go. Now, what that did on the flip side was it made me even worse in class because I wanted to get sent to the office. So every time I was allowed back into the classroom, I wasn't there for long. 
I remember we had this thing at our school called a leader band. So if you've been really good in class, you got given this leader band and got to stand at the front of the line. And I got the leader band one day for the first time. Now, I'd sat up in class straight for a day. I'd done everything the best of my ability. And the teacher finally said, you can be the leader for the day. And she gave me the leader band. And I was standing at the front of the line. And she was babbling on about something. And I just finally had a gut for her and said, look, would you just shut up? And that was it. The leader band was stripped off of me and I was put to the back of the line, <laughs> never to have it again. And so this sequence of events went on time and time again. And I would often be sent to Mrs. White's office just to be sat there and berated or just sit there and spend time with her. And the interesting thing was that when I finally got back into the classroom, I'd caused such a ruckus that I was thrown out. But this time it was different. The teacher followed close behind. And the thing about this is when I walked into the actual office, she slammed the door behind me and she started to rip strips off me, saying that I was a terrible kid. I was the reason she was going to quit. She was, anyway, it kept going to the point that Pam White stood up from behind the desk and she goes, you listen to me. She goes, there is no bad kids in this world, but there's plenty of bad teachers. And you, my dear, are one of the worst I've ever seen. Now, this is a good kid and I won't have you corrupt his future. Now, what I want you to do now is get out and close the door behind you. Now, no sooner had she done that, that she adjusted her suit jacket, gave me a wink, sat back down and continued typing. And this was the first time in my life anyone in authority in the school system had ever stood up for me. Later that day, my parents were called up again to what Dad kept referring to as the bi-weekly meeting. <laughs> and uh, he, he walked in the office and Pam sat them down and said, Mr. and Mrs. Van Borsom, I just want to let you know that your son is a good boy and he's got plenty of spunk. I wish more kids in this school had the spunk that he's got. The world would be a better place. And with that, I looked at her and my father looked at her and then he looked back at me and smiled. She said, if you can harness his energy, there's no telling how far this kid can go. With that one situation, I started to dream. And I started dreaming about all these wonderful things that I could be. I kept pulling mum aside in the house and saying, mum, dad, you know what? When I get older, I'm going to be a champion. I'm going to get big and strong and I'm going to get rich and take care of all of you. Now, of course, mum laughed it off. She thought it was me being funny. But I kept repeating this time and time again until the point one day it started to sink in that maybe this was more than what they first thought. And that was the point in time when I first started to have visions about the things that I could be. And I dreamed about being a champion. I dreamed about being in movies. I dreamed about being famous. I dreamed about being rich. I wanted all of these things, but I didn't know how to get it. I never had a plan in place. I didn't understand what I needed to do to get there. You know, you have to remember, I came from being a skinny kid. I was being bullied and pushed around nonstop, and I didn't know how to change it. So this continued for a while longer, and then I started looking for glimmers of hope. And the second glimmer of hope in my life came from my skin specialist. I was down there all the time, and my skin was so horrendous. And what happened one day when I was in there, he said to my mum, he said, you know what, Leslie, he said, don't get discouraged. He said, the human body changes every seven years, and his is doing the same thing. Now, this for me was amazing because the seven years wasn't that far away. I was almost seven. And so I grasped at that. I kept looking at my skin going, wow, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. It's going to change. So I started latching onto these little bits of hope and these little pieces that I could put together and add into a more positive mindset. Now, I didn't know how that was applied at the time. I just started to do that. And by doing that, I started to change how I looked at things. Now, look, at school, I wasn't any better. You know, the teachers, when I went through school, called me all kinds of stuff, and I was told I'd never amount to anything. But it didn't matter because I wasn't listening to them. I was starting to listen to me. And I was starting to listen to the kid that I wanted to become, the person I wanted to be. 
I suppose the biggest changing factor for me happened when I was, was 12. I'd been getting pushed around so much by the local kids that I'd had a gutful and I wanted to get big and I wanted to get strong and I wanted to know how to fight. And I made a conscious decision that I would learn these things. And just by chance, one day on my paper route, I was going past the local shops at Narawena and I looked up to the top left-hand side and I saw this sign for this gym called Tony's Gym. And as I looked there, this flight of stairs at the side of the gym, these two very muscular, almost like Superman looking people, walked up this flight of stairs and disappeared inside this doorway. Now this intrigued me. But instead of walking away, I decided to walk up there and I sneaked up this flight of stairs and I tried to look in the window, but I couldn't see. It was too high up. So I grabbed a milk crate and I stood on top of the milk crate and I peeked in the window. And as I did it, I got this stench, this smell, this emanation of hard work and sweat. And for some reason, it was appealing to me and I needed to know more. So I started looking further into the window and as I did, these two guys saw me. Instead of ushering me away as an annoying kid, they encouraged me to come in. So I went inside. Now this place looked like a torture chamber. Machines and chains and steel and iron as far as the eye could see. Photographs on the walls that were these monstrous muscle men. And that's what I wanted to look like. I was so excited by this that I said to them, I want to join this place. What do I do? And they told me the price. Now I didn't have the money, but I was doing a paper out. So I thought, well, I can put it away. So week by week, I started saving my money. As soon as I could afford it, I climbed the top of those stairs, went inside, and I joined the gym. The guy I met with was a guy called Tony. And he knew how to weed out the tire kickers from the real guys. And he took me into the gym, and he posed me this question. He said, do you really want to do this stuff? And I said, yeah. He said, are you prepared to do what I ask you to do? And I said, yes. And at that point in time, he handed me a broomstick. He said, well, this is what you learn with. I said, but I came here to do weights. I want to get bigger. I want to get strong. He said, first you learn technique. Then you lift weights. The gym went silent. People looked at me. I think they're waiting to see if I'd responded the right or wrong way that would fit with what they wanted. And I just sucked it up and went, you know what? I'll do it. Whatever you say. I could see the heads nodding in the background. And that was the day I started to train. With a broomstick. Now I trained with a broomstick for nearly nine months. Nine months of doing presses, squats, arm curls, every single exercise with an empty broomstick. But it developed my technique. And I kept looking at Tony trying to work out whether he would give me the nod or not. And then one day it finally happened. He walked into the gym with me, pointed to the weight rack, and he said, you can begin. But start light, keep your form, I'll be watching and that's how I started my weight training at 12 years of age. About two weeks later, and I stumbled across a magazine. Now this magazine was totally dedicated to this sport. This magazine was filled with these guys called bodybuilders. I was so excited, I grabbed this magazine and ran to my friend's place who I was training with at the time. And there we sat on the floor of his lounge room in front of his parents, just flicking through these pages. Shots of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk. But then I stopped on a photograph of a man called Bob Paris. Bob had just won the US National Heavyweight Bodybuilding Championships. I was so amazed by that physique, it was like a Greek statue. I just leapt to my feet and I said, that's going to be me. I'm going to win the Australian National Bodybuilding Championships. Well, the room fell silent. My mate's parents 
broke into the most hysterical laughter you've ever heard. His mum actually laughed that hard she had to leave the room and get tissues and come back wiping her eyes. And she said to me, it's either the dumbest or the funniest thing you've ever said. She goes, you'll never do that. You're skinny as a rake. But for a kid who'd been pushed around for so many years, for a kid who'd just started to find something he could latch onto, those words were crushing to me. So I grabbed my bag and I left their house and I didn't go back. I headed to the gym and I sat on the bench and I looked up at the wall of those champions, past and present, and I started to wonder how they did it. And I made a promise and a commitment to myself right then and there that one day I would become the national bodybuilding champion of Australia. And I trained hard. I lived, ate and breathed it. Every day after school, I'd be in the gym training. Every morning, I'd be doing cardio. I studied dietary applications and everything I could do to try and increase my strength, increase my size. Age 16, I thought I looked so good that I was going to go on my first ever bodybuilding show. Now, I didn't know much about bodybuilding. I'd seen it in magazines, but that was it. I'd never been to a bodybuilding show. No one in my area did it. So I found a show that was on the New South Wales Teenage Titles, and I took myself out there. Now, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone. Now, I didn't tell anyone I was going to this show, just in case the result was bad. But I headed out to Horsley Park, and up I got on stage amongst a sea of 24 golden brown bodybuilders, with me smack bang in the middle, white as a ghost. Yes, all my bodybuilding magazines were black and white. I had no idea they wore fake tan. The crowd was giggling. I had no idea how to pose. So whenever people would hit a pose... I would look at what they did and try and replicate it. People had proper posing trunks on. I had four-inch thick, wide, green Speedos. Every time I did something, the crowd laughed. But you know what? I could have used that as a reason to quit, as a reason to walk away. And that's what happens to most people these days. They take one bad hit, one stuff up, and they quit. But you know what? This stuff is what makes you tough. This is the stuff that makes you strong and, and proves your worth and tests your mental to see if you have what it takes to come back. You see, I, I did that. I made a decision to start, and this was my beginning. So I called the judging panel that night, and I said, listen, how do I improve for the next show? He goes, well, who are you? I said, I was in the teenage division, number 27. He just broke and laughed. He said, oh, yeah, the white kid. Yeah. He goes, mate, try some fake tan. That'll help. But he said, no, seriously, though, see if, if you want to be good. He said, you get some fake tan, you practice your posing, and get a routine. He said, if you can do that, it'll automatically improve you. And so that's what I started to do. I started training harder. I studied fake tans. I started working on posing routines. I saved all the money I had and I started buying bodybuilding videos, old VHS videos, and I would play them so often in my VHS player at mum and dad's when they got one that mum and dad had heard these things so many times they could tell you who was on stage without even being in the room because they'd heard the music so many times. Mum, and mum would be in the back room. She goes, is that Bob Paris or is that Lee Haney? She knew. So that's how often I watch these things. But I was driven. I was dedicated. Now, I didn't place in a show for three more years. But it didn't matter because I was improving. And that's something we have to look at for ourselves. We have to look at how are we improving, not about the result on the stage or the result from the competition. As long as you're pushing forward, as long as you're developing skill sets, as long as you're progressing and mentally, physically challenging yourself to move to new levels, the result will come. And the same thing happened to me. Eventually, I started taking thirds and seconds. And then by the time I was 20, I was ready. I was in the best shape of my life. 
About a week out from the competition, I was under the leg press, pushing out an extremely heavy weight, but my right knee folded sideways under the pressure, a crunching sound I will never forget. I rolled off the leg press onto the floor, clutching my knee. Tears were streaming down my face. But it wasn't for the pain. The tears were for the fact that if I didn't get on stage this weekend, that everything everyone had ever said about me in my life was right. And I couldn't deal with that. I didn't want that. So they called the ambulance for me and, and I refused to get in because I knew if I got in the back door of that ambulance and it was me saying that I'd lost. So I walked home. It took me over an hour and a half, but I managed to walk home. And that was about three streets away from the gym. I got home and I sat on the floor and I just considered my options and I didn't really have many. And the trouble is when you're alone with your thoughts and you're starting to wonder what your options could be and you realize pretty quickly you don't have many, you either give up and quit or you find another way. So I dried off my tears and I sat there thinking, what else can I do? Those famous words of my father's that have always stuck with me since that day. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to call my sports doctor, mate, Radley, and I'm going to find out what we can do. And that's what I did. The next day I called Radley Steele and I sat there and said, Radley, I've got a massive knee injury. I've got to be on stage for the Nationals next weekend. What can we do? So he said, well, mate, come down and let me have a look. So I got into a taxi and made my way down there. When he saw my knee, he said, mate, you, uh, you're done. But I couldn't handle that. I couldn't deal with that. And so I grabbed him and I pulled him in close. And I said, Radley, whatever you can do, make it happen. I don't care what it is. I have to get on stage next weekend. I've got so much riding on this. He took a moment to think about it. Then he looked at me and said, you know what, Greg? There's something we can try. He went and grabbed a large needle. He forced it under my kneecap and about two and a half cups of fluid emptied from my knee. We iced it and we strapped it and I went back to the gym. On a squat machine, doing about inch deep squats every day. And every day I went back to Radley and we took the fluid out and we iced it and we strapped it again. But I managed to get out on stage that next weekend, regardless of the pain, regardless of not being able to walk properly. I hit it with all my might. And at the end of the day, I managed to win the National Heavyweight Bodybuilding Championships by a single point. But I was elated. And it wasn't just for the win. It wasn't just for that victory. It was because of everything that had been accumulated through my life had come to this moment. And I knew that I suddenly meant something to myself. That all these doubts and fears and things people had said about me had all faded away now because I realized that I had something that I could fight for. And if I put my mind to something, I could be good. The crowning moment for me wasn't that day. It was the next day. When I went back to my friend's place, I hadn't been there in seven years. Ever since his mother had insulted me that time, telling me that I would never amount to that, I would not be good enough because I was skinny as a rake. Here I was, 20 years of age, the national bodybuilding champion. I walked up the stairs as best I could, made my way to the front door and knocked. When the door opened, I simply handed her my trophy. I smiled and limped away. And that was the time my mindset changed and I started to realise that I could be something of worth. And I was going to take that mindset and not only see how far I could push bodybuilding to, but how far I could push my life. 
And we've all got that inside ourselves. We've all got something we can fight for. And many of us don't believe we have it. We give up on ourselves way too fast. But if we just dug deep, if we just believed no matter what that we were going to get there, you don't know how, you don't know when, but you know you're going to get there. Then day by day, you keep moving towards the goal. And eventually, you make it. I hope you enjoyed that look into the first section of my life. Next episode, we're going to venture through the ends of bodybuilding and how I made my way through martial arts and into movies. I want people to learn that there is a way to make anything happen if you're committed enough and you're willing to push through whatever it takes to make it. This is Greg Van Borsum, and I'll see you soon.